Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I'll be speaking with Krista Shore, DNP, MSN, RN, FCCM, and we will be talking about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, International Guidelines for Management of Sepsis and Septic Shock, version 2021. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Shore is a clinical neuroscientist at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Shore was instrumental in being part of the panel that put together this version, and I feel so fortunate to be able to speak with her about the process that put it together and her thoughts about the content. Welcome, Dr. Shore. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No, Dr. Lin. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. I think it's amazing what the SCCM has done with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign over the years. And it probably was time for a new version to come out and to revisit the various points. And before Dr. Shaw and I start chatting, I just wanted to mention that this podcast cannot possibly cover all of it because it's such a huge set of guidelines. And we will be focusing today mostly on the long-term implications of a critical illness and how to care for those patients. But I wanted to mention briefly that all the areas of the surviving sepsis campaign have been revised in one way or another. And at first, they might not seem very different, but I think, you know, for all of us who are so used to taking care of septic patients, any small change is probably quite seismic. So there are going to be differences, you'll notice if you start reading through it, in the fluid management recommendations for antibiotic stewardship. There is a narrower choice of antibiotics depending on your level of suspicion. There's a shorter duration of antibiotic therapy if you can assess the patient for that. There is a different escalation of vasopressor therapy. Even little details like it's now considered okay to use pressors through a peripheral line. Different recommendations about steroid and bicarb administration, thoughts about chemoperfusion therapy. So lots of little details that are throughout the guidelines and make sure that you do get a chance to look through all of it. Again, I think we are so lucky today to be able to speak with Dr. Shore to talk about one of the new areas that is being emphasized in the surviving sepsis campaign, and that is about the long-term outcomes and goals of care, as well as subacute and, in a way, long-term care for people surviving critical illness. So I think what I'll do is hand over the mic, so to speak, to Dr. Shore and just ask you how you feel about the new addition Obviously, it's one of the topics that you emphasize in your panel participation and why you feel like they're important. Yes, so I'm super excited about the current guidelines, the 2021 guidelines. As most of you know, the first iteration of the guidelines was in 2004, so that was some time ago. And things have really changed. You know, literature has been, you know, making changes. And, you know, over the years, the focus was really on management. But now we see that, you know, patients are surviving sepsis. Some patients do fairly well and are discharged from the hospital quickly, where others may 
unfortunately may become, you know, chronic critically ill and, you know, patients experience challenges in recovery. And I think, you know, now is a good time to really address that. And we're really fortunate to have this section, you know, expanded. And I certainly did not do this alone. There were seven other colleagues that, you know, worked on this section with me, um, included physicians, nurses, as well as unique to this section really is that we had public members provide input. So survivors of critical illness or family members of those who survived sepsis. So their insight really helped guide some of the recommendations that we have in this iteration of the guidelines. Dr. Joel, what what would you say are the biggest points that you would like all uh, to take away from this version? I think the biggest, you know, points that we want to make is that, you know, patients are surviving. Some patients have physical challenges after surviving critical illness. Those patients that are on mechanical ventilation for long periods of time or those that are on vasopressors for septic shock may have some severe weakness or even cognitive challenges that, you know, maybe go unnoticed when they're in the ICU. However, when they move to the general medical floors, you know, it's important to know, you know, what this patient's functional capacity was before illness. And hopefully our goals are to get them as close as we can back to their functional status prior to the sepsis insult. And again, it's important that we not only work with the patients, but we also need to work with their families because, you know, we're really focusing our attention on patient family-centered care. And it's often the caregivers that need to be aware of, you know, the signs and symptoms, you know, to be aware of changes, when to seek, you know, healthcare advice. But there are a lot of little pieces that we need to do in order to help patients recovery. It's not just one element. There's a multitude of things that we need to do. And, you know, not every facility has these resources. So some facilities may have the ability to have an ICU follow-up clinic where they can see these patients. But there are many, many facilities in the United States and even internationally that would not have the capability of doing that, you know, running that sort of facility. So again, I think it's important that we look at the resources that we have within our facility, whether it's a teaching facility or a community hospital, and provide as much as we can to these patients and families so that they can continue the recovery process, not only in the hospital setting, but even after. Great. Thank you. I was thinking that we could talk about a ideal situation where resources and the ability to have these resources were not issues to that particular institution. In that situation, you know, what would your ideal workflow be for a patient and their families going through surviving sepsis? So please describe for us how you would go about pulling together the various components of the care program. So for instance, we can describe a patient that is admitted to the ICU with septic shock, was on vasopressors for a number of days, also was on mechanical ventilation for seven days. And at this particular point, the patient also had experienced some delirium while they were in the ICU. So during their ICU stay, the patient was assessed to determine whether they were ready for physical rehab or even just mobility. So the hope is that we would have initiated early mobility in these patients and also, you know, brought in occupational therapy just to see where the patient was at baseline before they were transferred to a general medical floor. In this particular case, this particular patient that we're describing has had some challenges, some weakness, and also has some difficulty swallowing at this point, so it really needs to be monitored a little bit more closely. So this particular patient we would send to a step-down unit. So it's important that 
during the transitions of care that we share with the receiving team, the patient's clinical course, so they have an understanding how long they were on the ventilator and vasopressors, and also, you know, what potential concerns we would have in order for them to continue on with their recovery. And in this process, too, we also want to include the family members so that they're aware now that their family member is transitioning out of the ICU into a step-down unit, and the care is going to be equally good, and that's important to share, but sometimes they also need to understand that the nurse-patient ratio is different. So having the time to prepare the family is key. So educating the patient and the family throughout this process is important. And the thought here is, too, that during the ICU stay, that there would have been a discussion of uh, goals of care and that the family and the patient are participating in shared decision making. So we want to ensure as clinicians that we are caring for this patient and providing the level of care that they would deem acceptable because it's not only this patient is surviving sepsis, some of these patients have a multitude of comorbidities or chronic illnesses that are really going to come into play. So as clinicians, we need to understand where the patient and the family are as far as their goals of care and their choices, and we need to include families in that discussion. So now the patient's going to move to a step-down unit, and we need to begin that recovery process. So the patient that we're describing here is just on nasal cannula at this point, but most of the time patients will complain of, you know, weakness. Majority of patients will complain with weakness in their hands, which is going to certainly affect their ability to do activities of daily living, such as brushing their teeth and combing their hair. So again, you know, having therapy in there to help guide them in this process is really important and promoting mobility. So even if the patients are not able to walk right away, we can certainly sit them on the side of the bed or help them to the chair. Again, each day we want to ensure that we are proceeding in the process of helping this patient recover. Not all patients are able to walk before they leave the institution, so they may need physical rehab or long-term care. It depends on, you know, how debilitated they are from this sepsis episode. But during the hospitalization, we really want to try to get them to a place that is going to help facilitate that recovery. One thing that, you know, we, we think we do all the time, but may not do it 100% of the time is that, you know, we need to assess the patient's psychosocial aspects for anxiety and depression. Patients may have PTSD from their ICU experience, and sometimes that doesn't come out right away in the hospital setting. Sometimes that doesn't surface until they're in rehab or even at home. But we need to ensure that we're educating the patient and the family related to those potential possibilities. And that sometimes is called a post-intensive care syndrome or PICS. So we want to be aware of those challenges and ensure that we educate the patient and the family that that is not uncommon, but we want them to seek medical advice if they do have any of those difficulties. So again, preparing the patient for discharge from the hospital, we also want to assess their financial situation and their social support because we certainly don't want to send a patient home or to a rehab facility not knowing what their situation is. So if we discharge a patient home, for instance, we want to ensure that, you know, they have the So it's not uncommon for patients to potentially have some financial challenges, especially you know, patients who are younger and are still working. And we need to ensure that they have, the patients and the families have the resources that they need and the financial resources to be able to get the medication that they need or the rehab that they need 
And again, social work and transitional care navigators are certainly very, very helpful with that. But as clinicians, we can't just assume that the patients have resources after discharge. So again, most of the patients will go to physical rehab for a period of time, but they need to continue working on, you know, their cognitive function as well. It's not uncommon for patients to feel a little foggy where their brain is just not clear. Even though they were perfectly functional before this illness, surviving sepsis and critical illness can certainly have a toll on patients. And again, this is ideal. If the patient is discharged from the rehab facility and they go home, you know, the thought is that, you know, they're certainly ready to go home but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100%. And many survivors will tell us they still have like a foggy brain. They still have muscle weakness and actually strength in their hands is a a big complaint that patients have. So they need to continue working on this. And really what we're hoping is that, you know, if you have the capability to send or refer these patients to an ICU follow-up clinic, that would be ideal. But unfortunately, we know that it doesn't exist in most facilities. So referring patients to their primary care physician who then can help link them with whatever it is they need if they need physical therapy, you know, where they maybe they'll go two or three times a week for strength and conditioning. If the patient's experiencing depression or anxiety, again, referring them to, you know, the behavioral health would be certainly ideal. I think the most important thing here is that we let the patient and family know that some of the things that they're going to experience are not unique to them, and they should share that information with their healthcare provider so that they can get the resources that they need in in a timely fashion. And again, even after they, they recover, I mean, something else that may be helpful is support groups. So there are a variety of support, peer support. So there could be a one-on-one. So we may be able to link a patient with a previous survivor and they can share information as to recovery. There are support groups that are virtual. And again, during COVID, many support groups actually were done in a virtual setting. And again, the goal here is to support one another and share stories. A lot of times patients become very friendly with one another, even outside of the support group meeting, and they're able to recognize changes in one another and, you know, offer some suggestions, you know, in in seeking additional medical advice. So again, support groups are super helpful. Providing education at this particular point is helpful. One area that I think some of us really don't think about is the potential that these patients would get sepsis again, and they are at high risk for another sepsis episode. And unfortunately, patients who experience a second episode requiring a readmission to the hospital tend not to do well and are more likely to have a poor outcome with that second readmission. So educating our patients on the signs and symptoms so that they can access healthcare provider assistance as early as feasibly possible I think is, you know, a big plus. So when you think about, you know, recovery, it's not recovery from the ICU is just the first step. There are several steps along the clinical course that these patients have to go through. And, you know, the challenge is that it may take months for some patients. It may be years before they're able to feel like themselves again. So as clinicians, I think we need to understand that and begin to, you know, provide care that puts patients on this road to recovery, actually, when they're presenting to us in critical illness, recognizing all the risks that are contributing to a delayed recovery. So I I think that kind of wraps it up for that particular patient. I mean, that's, you know, a a unique patient, but again, I think that really gives a a good picture of what, what recovery would look like for patients surviving septic shock that was in the ICU. 
It does. Thank you. That very much is an archetypal patient, I think, and brings up all the various issues that we need to think about. So I think that was perfect. Thanks. Like you mentioned, there are so many different team members that we in the ICU have, and they're all essential toward getting a patient better. And by better, as you pointed out, it doesn't mean just surviving the ICU stay. It means actually getting out of the hospital, getting through rehab, and becoming a fulfilled member of the society again. And that involves physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, our social workers, the case manager, and maybe even a psychologist, which is what I'm hearing you talk about. So it's, yeah, it, it takes a village. I wanted to ask you a couple follow-up questions. One in particular is about the role of a psychologist or a therapist. You talked about how sometimes later on in their recovery, the patient surviving septic shock can develop or have come to the surface psychological issues like PTSD or anxiety and depression. Is there a particular point, time point when the availability of a psychologist or a behavior specialist would be most helpful? So I really think it depends on the patient and when they, you know, begin to have these symptoms and, you know, where it's actually disrupting their life. I think the challenge here is that there are patients that really don't verbalize that they're experiencing these difficulties. And I think, you know, letting them know that it's not uncommon. And if they do experience, you know, anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress disorder, that they should verbalize that because there are resources to help them through that particular process. Some patients actually experience this while they're in the hospital, so we can intervene, you know, while they're still hospitalized. You know, it's not uncommon for patients who were in the ICU for a long period of time, once they get to, you know, the general medical floor, you know, they feel kind of hopeless because they're not functioning at the same capacity as they were prior to this illness and, you know, tend to, you know, experience depression. We can bring behavioral health in at that particular point, and you know they're already in the they would already be in the system, so we can set up a follow up visit. It's the patients that are you know gone to rehab, they've recovered physically, they look perfectly fine on the outside, but when it comes down to having a conversation with them, they'll say, "You know, I'm just not the same, I really don't have the same drive, I can't do what I used to do." And it's not uncommon for them to, you know, to feel depressed. And I, I think as long as we let them know and encourage them to seek you know, medical advice and counseling, perhaps, I think more patients will continue in that recovery. And it, it happens at all ages. So if you're 25 years old with septic shock or you're 80 years old with septic shock, the age really doesn't matter. It's just really how patients feel. And that's really important for the recovery. If we have patients that are anxious and depressed, they're less likely to attend, you know, the physical rehab that we have recommended for them. So it's really, unfortunately, it, it's a spiral because it really impacts their recovery. So I think bringing this to the surface and, you know, letting patients know that the healthcare providers are there for them to help them in this recovery process. And again, I think when you, when they hear in support groups that someone else has experienced this, you know, these psychosocial issues, it really opens them up to say, you know, this is happening to me and, you know, I really need to get some help. And, you know, just sometimes having a peer voice that information can be super helpful. Yes, I totally agree with that. I wanted to ask you about how to prioritize if 
a institution has a limited budget? I sort of feel like that's almost an unfair question because obviously every component is so important. Do you have any feelings about that at all? Well, I mean, in the guidelines for this this particular section, long-term outcomes and goals of care, we do really address, you know, in limited resource settings, how some of these things can be accomplished. You know, education is something that's very low cost. So educating our patients, providing them with the print material and verbal education, and the public members actually stress the importance of that that we provide not only written information, but we actually sit down and educate the patients verbally. And it may require several sessions because they are overwhelmed with the the amount of information that they're receiving, and they really want to understand what's happening, but we need to ensure that we take the time to spend with families. But again, education is key. Transitions of care in the hospital to ensure the patient's getting the right care at the right time in the right place. There's no real cost in that. So it's basically the the continuum of care and having maybe protocols in place to ensure that the patient's receiving the right care. It's very low cost to do that. Mm -hmm. Things that are expensive are the, you know, to set up a post-ICU clinic. So if you don't have that capability, perhaps there, you know, we can make sure that patients follow up with their primary care provider and that person can serve as a resource for them to find other resources that they may need. So if they're having issues with renal impairment, that they can be referred out to a nephrologist. Or if they're having psychosocial issues, we can send them to behavioral health. But they need to see someone to manage their care. And I think that's the correlate to having an ICU follow-up clinic. Yes. Thank you so much for reminding us that this is part of the version 2021 to help us prioritize when there are limited resources. I think that that could be very helpful for a lot of people because, hey, healthcare environment being what it is. So thank you for saying that. One thing that you and I had talked about before we started recording was that you were hoping that the addition of these topics not only makes providers think about these issues more, and I think this podcast has amply supported why we should, but that it will also spur some more studies to accumulate and present data supporting the necessity of these different treatment assessment measures. Is that right, Dr. Shores? Yes, absolutely. If, if When you look at the guidelines for long-term outcomes and goals of care, you'll see that the recommendation, the strength of the evidence, uh, most of the, the recommendations are best practice statements or weak with low quality of evidence. And best practice statements really just aim to facilitate evidence-based practice and improve quality. And unfortunately, with many of these recommendations, there's very little research in, you know, available in the literature for us to include. But although we recognize that each one of these elements is important to the recovery of patients with sepsis. So, again, having additional literature and research in this area would really be helpful to not only have more robust recommendations, but also to understand what patients and families need in the process of recovering from sepsis. Yes, I can totally see that. And I could also see us making different financial decisions because of those studies. For example, what are the outcomes of patients surviving septic shock who do not have sufficient resources? What are the outcomes of people who get to have active management of their post-critical illness syndrome? 
if those outcome studies can show us some dramatic differences and suggest that our money could be efficiently spent in one particular way, I think that could really, you know, drive our healthcare forward in a constructive fashion. So hopefully we will be able to see that soon and the surviving sepsis campaign will have contributed toward that. It's It's been a great discussion. I feel like we should wrap up, although I could go on for hours about this topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Shore, for making time to talk about this topic and to you know raise the awareness of it for all of us. Before I conclude, would you like to say some other words of conclusion? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I certainly appreciate time and allowing me to talk about this. I think, you know, many people are going to feel very strongly about, you know, what can they do for patients in recovery? And it's not not only about the management, the financial cost of what's going to go into helping patients recovery, but it's also if we continue to focus on the quality of life for these individuals, I think that'll help us move the needle and how we're caring for these patients in the hospital, as well as after discharge. So again, I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I hope clinicians are able to identify with the recommendations and move recovery from sepsis forward in their patient populations. Yeah, that was a perfect way to wrap this up. So I think that should serve as the conclusion of this edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Bielen. Thank you so much for joining us. Ludwig H. Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Sutter Hospitals in the Northern California Bay Area and is a consulting professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesiology residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University and the University of California, San Francisco, where he has been a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. His academic interests include patient, family, communication, and education. Being an SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. All rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.